Hello, everyone. This is Megan. And this is Alana. And welcome to Tea Time Crimes, a podcast where every week you hear a refined and bold tea review from our expert, Alana. You know, it tricks you because it sits delicately, but then as it goes down, you can feel the body and it really lingers. With the natural pairing of a horrific murder, she murdered at least 14 people. Ew. But they still dig in. So join us each week to hear the story of a woman through the lens of murder and mayhem and hear two friends having the time of their lives. You know I hate true crime, right? Mm, Are you sure? Yeah. Anyway, listen wherever you get your podcasts. Tea time crime, out! Eighteen seventy-three, Lebet County, Kansas. A small one-room home has been abandoned, and almost a dozen dead bodies are found buried nearby. All of them victims of a family of killers known nowadays as the Bloody Benders. The Benders have become the stuff of legend. Their heinous acts became fodder for newspapers and tabloids, not just at the time, but through today. As you can imagine, it can be tough to sift through all the rumors, conjectures, and folklore that came about, but even the stories that might be false don't hold up to what we know to be true. These serial killers were pure evil, and the worst part of their tale is that they got away. This is a study of strange. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Michael May, and joining me is the one, the only, John M. Keating. <laughs> How you doing, John? <laughs> Hello, I'm good. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> yeah, I didn't plan I to introduce you that I way. Am, that's why I have to use my middle initials. So yes, I can right. Be the only. John M. John M. So, John, you're a, a an actor, an acting teacher, an acting coach with G. Charles Wright Studios in Los Angeles, and you i've told you i hopefully i didn't make you feel uncomfortable when i was like i want to find a good murder mystery for you oh no 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 it's just funny i i that i became like the czar of murder mysteries yeah i know i know (laughs) now uh john is a is a big fan of like columbo and a lot of old noir movies and stuff like i am as well um so i've been waiting around wanting to find some sort of unsolved murder mystery to have you on just because i thought it would be fun to kind of look at it from a detective point of view this is a little different than I hoped, but I was like, I think John, John might enjoy this one. It's a crazy oh, one. Oh, I definitely do. This is great. Yeah. So it's today we are talking about the bloody benders uh, who killed between 11 and 23 people in Southern Kansas, depending on what sources you read in the 1870s. And this was a, a huge national storyline. Like press was huge uh, about this at the time when it happened. So it is not an uncommon story. It is very, very popular. There's been documentaries. There's even been some scripted movies. But yeah, it's full of strangeness because the family disappeared. It's a family of serial killers and they all disappeared. No one caught them. And there's a lot of fanciful reports about the benders and what happened afterwards. Uh, And today we're going to talk about some of those and also what I think think most likely happened because there actually are more reports than a lot of the articles out there would have you believe so that we do know more facts about the benders after they were found out to be killers than uh, is commonly talked about. Uh, Before we begin, just real quick, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, I put out a new uh, 
a new series for my Patreon listeners and supporters. So check that out through our website, studyofstrange.com. Thank you for waiting on that, John. You did a good job as I did that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You got to get business out of the way. You got to get business done. <laughs> got to get it done. Uh, so let me ask real quick, John, had you heard of the Bloody Benders before I asked you about it? Not not to this extent. I feel like I may have heard like of that kind of genre of the family yeah. of serial killers, you know. And so yeah. I be, I may have heard something about the but not them specifically like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you uh, mentioned it was pretty right, crazy. Yeah. And right before we started rolling, you mentioned that it's very much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And totally. It is. It really is. So there there yeah. might be some influence on some of those types of stories. It's a crazy one. There's a lot to go over. So this might be a two parter. So I've kind of organized it. However, you never know. We might get through it quick. Who knows? Uh, But it's most likely a two parter. So one of the things I'm going to posit as kind of a theory to think about over these two episodes is that I don't think the benders killed people exactly the way that all the stories describe. Like there's this very famous, which you probably looked at when you just sort of looked it up about them sneaking up behind somebody with the canvas in front of them and hitting them on the head and then cutting on the throat. Yeah. Yeah, With the hammer. Some of that is, I think it's partly true, but I don't think that's actually how they killed all their victims for reasons that I'll get into. Yeah. And I'm going to start with a, a certain part of the story and then kind of go backwards. This is like a little, a little prelude or a a teaser, if you will. So, (laughs) On May 6th, 1873, in Labette County, Kansas, a group of men, probably dozens of them, are searching for the missing Dr. William York. And they arrive at a cabin, which is right on the main trail, the Osage Mission Trail, which is an old Native American trail. And it became kind of like the main highway in the area of the time in this part of Kansas. And Leroy Dick, a local official who is in charge of the search for Dr. York, has been told that there's a cabin that is abandoned and empty. And it is home to the Bender family, what people call the Benders. And apparently this family left it abandoned recently for reasons unknown. And Billy Toll, a farmhand who told Leroy Dick about the desertion of this cabin, is there with the party to search. And they suspect the Benders might be involved with some nefarious murdering (laughs) activity in the area. Uh, So they decide to search this abandoned cabin. And I'm going to quote from my main source today. It's a book from Suzanne Jonas's. It's called Hell's Half Acre, The Untold Story of the Benders, a Serial Killer Family on the American Frontier. So here's here's a little quote from the story. Inside, a single room is divided by the canvas sheet from a wagon. Dick yanks the makeshift curtain aside and is engulfed in a cloud of filth. It settles to reveal a sparsely furnished living space inhabited by insects, the retreat into the crevices at the fall of heavy boots. The cabin has been empty for some time, but it is clear that the occupants left quickly, taking only the essentials needed for travel. Toward the back of the room, the scent of decay is stronger. A Bible with a cracked spine lies discarded near the straw mattress, pulled aside to reveal a trapped door. Or a trap door is the proper English of that instead of trapped door. Grasping the leather strap nailed to the wood as a handle, Dick throws the door open and the smell leaks into the cabin. It sticks to the throats of the search party. Beneath the men, a dark void opens. Silas Toll, Billy's older brother, volunteers to descend. 
He is a rancher and used to the smell of animal carcasses, but down in the cellar he struggles to breathe. The floor is a slab of sandstone reddened by unnatural stains. When Silas crouches to investigate further, he finds that the soil surrounding the slab is damp. Hoisting himself from the pit, he tells the group that they will have to move the cabin to gain better access to the cellar, that there is definitely something buried beneath the slab. And that, thank you for bearing with me with that long little section there, John. Um, but I just liked, I like the setup that they find this abandoned cabin and there's terrible smells and blood. Oh yeah. It's, it's the opening of a movie. I mean, it is, Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. It's, yeah. And, and the, uh, we're going to have to, rem- there's something buried under the slab is such an ominous sentence. <laughs> yes, indeed. And, and this is a tale. This tale is grotesque. It is macabre and it's weird. And, and, People are still trying to understand it today, including us today. So let's start at the beginning of this craziness that led to that moment of searching. This goes back, I I think, three years. I think it's 1870. Kansas at the time in 1870, it's a rugged place. And I don't just mean the landscape. I mean, culturally, too. During the Civil War, just before this, there were the bushwhackers, primarily in Missouri, but they would fight in in Kansas a lot. They were pro-slavery. Then there's the Jayhawkers, which if you know your Kansas sports, <laughs> everybody, you know yep, them. Totally, yeah. And, and they were abolitionists mm-hmm. and they were primarily in Kansas and they got caught up in all the fighting. After the war, after all of this brutal, brutal fighting, now these people are, there's a lot of them are still around. They're living amongst each other. There's a lot of emotions. People in America are generally moving out and migrating west at this point through Missouri and Kansas and Oklahoma and all these kind of places. And there's a lot of thieves and robbers and murderers and con men, and they're all trying to survive. Also, in the decades leading up to this, there was famously the Trail of Tears, where Native Americans were shipped out of their homes and sent to the Oklahoma Territory. And that is on the border of southern Kansas, where our story takes place today. And outlaws exploited the proximity of this border to escape, whether it's like stealing stuff and then you hightail it down into Indian Territory to get away from any potential uh, law enforcement. Now, all that said, homesteading is going on. So people are, they're allowed or able to purchase for very little money, a large plot of land. And if they cultivate it and build on it for a certain period of time, they get to keep the land forever. It's theirs. This is a huge part of the westward expansion of the United States history. So on an October morning in 1870, two men arrived at the Osage Township in southern Kansas. And this is near today where the town of Cherryvale is. I think it was set up actually during this story. And there was a little cabin here, which was a trading post. And two men ran the trading posts, and their names were Edward Earn and Rudolph Brockman. And they're sitting outside, apparently, hanging out. And these two, these two men show up on a carriage. And one is in his 20s, and he introduced himself as John Gephardt. And the older man was around 60, and he was John Bender. And the assumption is that the two men were related, but no one actually seems to have inquired about their relationship, whether they were related by blood, by marriage. No one knows, even still to this day, no one knows. Now, Gephardt uh, in common tellings is referred to as John Bender Jr. And there's a lot of claims saying that they didn't find out his name was Gephardt until after the murders were discovered. That doesn't actually seem to be true. He actually introduced himself as John Gephardt at the time. He also seems to have introduced himself as John Bender to some people. So it's re- it's just really strange, These this family. 
There, now, and there's a lot of that coming up. There's oh, a yeah. lot of that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's tons. There's a whole, through both yeah. parts, there's a lot of these things. Yeah. Uh, when In the second part, when I get into the press that, that happened immediately after, the descriptions of people are all over the place. Yeah. So they both these guys had German accents. John Bender, as I'll refer to him, the PA, as they call him sometimes, uh, he had a very thick German accent and apparently could not really speak English. And he was also incredibly unfriendly and brutish and mean. A lot of the descriptions call him very hairy. Like I imagine a big brute Bigfoot sort of creature. Yes. Um, a lot hair of the suit, art, if you will. Yeah, there you go. He had, <laughs> definitely had a hair suit. This guy is a is, he is a walking hair suit for sure. And John Gephardt was kind of skinny. He had like a narrow face. Apparently his eyes were like too close together. And he had this really annoying laugh where he would be like, <laughs> Oh yes, <laughs> except he had a German accent, so that's a terrible impression. But uh, <laughs> they sound like they sound like the side characters in a Disney movie. <laughs> they totally are, right? Like, are like Pirates yep. of the Caribbean. Like, yep. they're the yep. two. They're yep. the two Mackenzie Crook and, and the other yep. guy pirates that are yep. like not the main ones. But. You got to have like the skinny one and the chubby one. The, the skinny one and, and the chubby one. The uh, like, hundred one Dalmatians. Yeah, absolutely, yep. absolutely. Yep. They they absolutely are. Uh, and they allegedly were moving in from Pennsylvania, which actually does make sense because we don't know if they sure. really did move in from Pennsylvania. But if they're German, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. Dutch, even my ancestors were Pennsylvania Dutch. They they immigrated into Pennsylvania. So it actually makes sense. They may have been from Pennsylvania. And so uh, Ern, the gentleman Ern, showed these two German guys around to the various plots that might be they might be interested in in town. And they picked one out. That was perfect for travelers because it's literally right on the Osage Mission Trail. So it's right on the highway of its time. But it it was sort of sunken low between some mounds and hills that are still there today where people can't really see the cabin. There's there's some privacy in the otherwise sort of flat, sparse Kansas terrain. Kansas, yeah. Yeah. Not known for its hilly. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Known more for its tornadoes and uh, yes. taking people up. In, inside of tornadoes. Uh, now, what I didn't know until researching is that John Bender, he is the one that purchased the the plot. It was 160 acres that the cabin was on. And wow. Gephardt actually purchased his own plot, which was kind of nearby. It was a narrow strip that was a bit, I, I think it had more trees and stuff on it. They never, He never built anything on it. He never did anything with the land. So some people suspect that it was for more privacy in the area, which I totally buy. Now, when the man got the land, they kind of quickly paced out the cabin in the ground. They literally took their feet and like drew a line. It was like, here's the cabin. What are they used sticks to kind of draw things out. And then they built their own cabin because that's what that's what men did back then. John, yes. what do we do with our lives now? We do- We're podcasting. That's <laughs> what we do. <laughs> I am. I am not a man. No. Like they were no, back I, then. I can't. Yeah. I mean, I don't even, I don't like people make bread. I don't know how they do that. They, I just buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Bread is hard. I've actually tried to make bread. It is yeah, not easy. easy. Yeah. They were doing all that. So they built a 16 by 24 cabin uh, with nine foot ceilings. There was a door at each end. Some stories say there's only a front door, but there actually was a front and a back door. There was a what is always called a trap door to the basement. It's not a trap door. It's just a little thing you lift up. It's like a hatch. It like, it's a hatch. Yeah. They did cover it and hide it, but it's not a trap door. And they built the cabin really quickly because winter is a coming when they're when they're moving in in 1870. 
Uh, over the period of, of months after that, they planted an orchard behind the house. They also built sort of a stable, a corral for, for animals right there. They also dug a well. And allegedly, when they first moved in, Gebhardt would make money by taking stolen horses across the border. I don't know. I don't know how to confirm that. That's just one of those stories that comes up <laughs> with tales of the time. Uh, and the men nailed a sign out front that said groceries, but they spelled groceries G-R-O-C-R-Y-S. I mean, you know, English may not be their first language, no. so it makes sense. And so, yeah, they, they planned to sell some goods to make some money along the trail. Now, it, apparently, John Bender was it, when they opened up shop and they started having customers, you know, stop on their travels to buy things. John Bender was... Uh, unfriendly <laughs> there's there's much worse ways to describe it he was a very unfriendly dude and sometimes like wouldn't even help potential customers and he also didn't speak english which doesn't help but he never really tried uh in march of 1871 the bender boys were joined by the lady folk kate bender or katie sometimes uh, in her early 20s and ma bender she's sometimes referred to as almira or elvira bender uh, I will explain that in part two. No one actually knows her name. It was they just refer to her as Ma. No one actually knows her real name, and that is the truth. The book I read, my main source, is this is the only place I ever saw this. It says that they came from Ottawa, the women, which I was like, can I can I get more information on that? And there wasn't. It just said they came from <laughs> Ottawa. And I was like, that's weird because the guys came from Pennsylvania. Yeah. The women are coming from Ottawa. I don't know. It just it's it's a very interesting detail. I wish I knew more about because that might explain some of why the benders are the way they are, because we don't know. We don't know why they were as crazy as they are. So uh, Ma Bender, similar to Pa Bender, uh, spoke very little English, very heavy accent. She did know more English than she let on, but she didn't know it very well. And she was considered a she devil is what a lot of people called her. Ah, she yes. was also just as unfriendly as the the hair suit man known as Pa Bender. Uh, <laughs> and Kate or, or Katie, I'll probably refer to her as Kate, but she went by both. Um, she did have a little bit of a German accent, apparently, but she spoke okay. very good English, not as much of a German accent as the other guys. And Kate came with Ma, right? That's right. Like, yeah, they came she together. She was not born of Ma yes. and Pa Bender, right? No, like people, she- people assume that if they are related, she's most likely Ma's daughter but no, again no one knows no one right. knows yeah, if this no, entire yeah. family is a real family at all no one we have no confirmations of any of that and it is interesting that they're german but coming through ottawa right right because yeah. isn't ottawa primarily i would imagine french speaking at the time i don't know yeah, enough about canada so, yeah. but i think so um now around the time that the that kate and ma showed up they started kind of running their their business model they landed on, which is accepting guests at the cabin, not just for groceries, but also to make a warm meal, give people a place to sleep out of the elements for the night because you have all these travelers. There are no motels at the time. So you just stop at someone's house to stay the night. There's no like guest room. This is all one big room separated by that canvas sheet. So it's probably a chair or you put your saddle on the ground with a blanket and that's that's where you sleep. And that's primarily how the benders tried to make money. Now, the word about town is that Ma and Pa did not socialize. Like they would stay at the house and do chores around the house. They would every now and then go into town or a township to buy supplies, but they didn't really talk to people. 
And again, they were really terrible at socializing. They were not good people. Um, and so Kate and John, it was up to them to kind of socialize in town. And they did. They went to church. They went to Sunday school. Kate worked at a hotel and eventually a, a couple other jobs as well. So they were more well known amongst the town folk at the time. And they were considered much nicer. But there are periods of time where their oddities, their their eccentricities would come across to the locals and they rub them the wrong way. Like Kate was apparently a healer and a spiritualist and would hold seances and admit that she or not admit, but suggest that she could heal all sorts of abnormalities. And she would push people a little too hard for that kind of business. She was an aggressive car salesman. And John, again, had that irritating, not you, John, but John Gephardt had the irritating laugh that made people think that he might be stupid, like he, there might be some sort of mental disability uh, at the time. I, I think one of the quotes from a source back then is calling him a half-wit, which definitely sounds like a 19th century. That's what passes as a mental health yes, diagnosis back, back in then, the 19th, yeah. early 19th century. Indeed. So here's where something strange begins to happen. Earn, who is the the guy that showed the Bender boys around for claims, uh, he was bought out of his business, out of the trading post. And so he took that money that he earned and he sent it overseas to pay for his fiance and her mother to move to the States, I think from Germany. So they're making the trek over. And when you travel and make big moves back then, everything you own comes with you. <laughs> there's no there's no FedEx, there's no storage facilities, there's right. no banks. Well, there are banks, but they're not everywhere and they're not very accessible. There's so no, I'll just buy a couch when I get there. Like exactly. Not, yeah, yeah. Everything's coming so, with you. So everything's coming with them, and Earn set it up so that they could stay at the Bender cabin when they arrived to town for a little bit. So they arrived to town, they're staying with the Benders, and one day the entire Bender family suggests to the fiance and her mother, we should go on a long walk. And they were like, Oh, that sounds lovely. So they all go out to walk, and the two older benders at one point are like, oh, we're not feeling well, or we're old, I don't know. They came up with some excuse. They turned around and left the younger, the younger group to keep walking. And when the younger group made it back to the cabin, a jewelry box was gone, as well as all their cashier's checks. I don't know how much money the cashier's checks added up to, but it had to be, again, probably everything they had. Yeah, and they were thing. gone and nothing else is gone, by the way. Those are the things that are gone. So the the family immediately blames the benders. They think they've been had and, and they've had a they've been stolen from by the benders. And so they're very upset about it. And John Gephardt is like, ah, it's horse thieves. It's horse thieves. It happens around these parts. They're horse thieves. You shouldn't stay here. It's too dangerous because they might still be around. So he takes the ladies to some other family nearby and has them stay somewhere else. Earn, of course, finds out about this. He actually threatens the benders, shows up at the cabin with a gun and like holds it to the benders and is like, I demand to have the jewelry box and the checks given to me. I know you have them. They decline. They play dumb and stupid and like, we don't know what you're talking about. It's so sad. And he realizes wisely uh, he can't really do anything because there's no evidence. So he threatened him, didn't get anything out of it. So that's all he could do. He put his gun away and he's left. Um, by 1871, in this, this same year, this is all happening. The the cabin became what we all know it to be from all the, the tales, because it didn't always look the same. They obviously planted the orchard, which was growing. They may not have even had the canvas separator right away that may have taken a time before they did that. 
And very famously, there is this white canvas that hung in the middle of the cabin to separate the living quarters for all the benders, all of them in one little spot. And the front area for cooking, eating, there's a table that had two benches. It's always in, in pictures, they always draw chairs, but it actually apparently is two benches. And one side faced the door with the canvas right behind it. And that's very important for the story. Yes. And one thing, I don't know how important this is for the story, but I love these kind of inconsistencies when you research things. Apparently, the canvas, according to one account, was not white. It was a red calico curtain and not a white canvas. And this is where I like to say on the show, both can be true. It's not like, <laughs> oh, we proved it wrong. They might have switched it out at one point, you know, or right. maybe they rotated it. Maybe they cleaned them. There are I'm a lot sure of stories. the white one gets dirty every once oh, yeah. in a while. And there from, are reports you know, that it's use. like stained. And I think those reports are from all the press articles that came out that are mostly making up stories that like, because right. some people are like, oh, stained with blood. And I'm like, that would just scare away customers. I don't think they yeah, just left yeah. blood no on the camera. <laughs> yeah. So here, um, have some dinner and sit right by the blood-stained yeah. canvas. Put your head yeah. right there by the blood That's mark. Cool. Yeah, it, it doesn't make sense, which is one of my theories of why I don't think they were attacked the way everybody thinks they were attacked. Uh, however, apparently they were very dirty. Like, there's a lot of comments on like dirty dishes and bugs and stuff like that. Um, a, lot of, a lot of negative Yelp reviews. No, yes. Oh, yes. The vendor, so the Yelp reviews are <laughs> not good. Yelp, but this will be reflected in my Yelp yep. review. And the benders didn't care because there's no other business nearby that does right, the same right. thing. So they're like, yeah, they leave, the leave, leave a bad Yelp review. We don't care. Uh, Kate was also, she was very interested in her spiritualism practice, her, her business of healing. That's, I think, she would have much rather just been telling fortunes and telling people she can cure blindness uh, than kill people. That's my own assumption. Uh, she did market and advertise her services all around the area. So I actually am going to read one because it's, it's fun. So it says, Professor Miss Katie Bender can heal all sorts of diseases, can cure blindness, fits, deafness, and all such diseases. Also deaf and dumbness. Residents 14 miles east of Independence on the road from Independence to Osage Mission, one and one half miles southeast of Nora Head Station, Katie Bender, June 18th, 1872. <laughs> yeah, I love that stuff. I Fitz. love that stuff. I love Fitz. Fitz, yeah. That covers Fitz. so many things. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, spiritualism, I'm not going to go into, but people can listen to my William Mumler series to learn a little bit more about it. Spiritualism is a huge belief slash religion at the time where people thought they could talk to dead people. And Katie is not the only spiritualist in the area. It was very, very prominent, including one story from a woman named Julia Hessler, who was a friendly medium. She would hold seances around the area with Kate Bender sometimes. And one night, Kate invited Julia to come to the cabin for a seance. This is where our first scene comes in, John. You excited? I'm very excited. Okay. So scene one, um, who do, do you care who you read? Which part do you want to read? No, let me pull it up here a second. Uh, so it's no, the this... first scene. Oh, uh, is... I'm, I'm open to whatever casting decisions. Let's have you do. Let's have you do Julia. Okay, great. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not going to try to do a German accent because I will, I will be terrible for Kate. 
Uh, <laughs> all right. So here we go. So it's a brisk night, and Julia Hester knocks on the door of the Bender cabin. Kate Bender opens the door and gestures for Julia to enter. Julia notices a small fire in a stove and two candles lit on a table in the center of the room. A dirty canvas hangs behind the table, separating the room in two. Good evening, Kate. Thank you for inviting me. Sit, sit. Julia begins to sit down on one of the, ben- on one of the benches at the table. Not there. Sit facing the door. It's much more comfortable. All right. Julia takes a seat with her back against the canvas. I'm very excited you've come. Let's get started. Kate blows out the candles, and the room, which was already barely lit, is now exceptionally dark except for bits of light from the stove casting strange shadows across the walls. Close your eyes. Where's the rest of your family? They don't partake in seances. Kate reaches for Julia's hands. Now, close your eyes. Kate closes her eyes, and Julia begins to close hers, but a swarming fly swoops across her face, and she pulls a hand away from Kate's to swat at it. Come now, it's just a gnat. Kate grabs Julia's hands again and they both close their eyes. Those from the spirit world, we wish to communicate. Spirits, we offer ourselves as vessels. Julia notices a creaking sound. She tries to ignore it. Kate begins to make a strange humming sound. Hum. Julia hears another creak and opens her eyes. Behind Kate, lit by the faint flickers of the fire from the stove, stands Ma, Pa, and John Gephardt. They are staring silently at Julia. Oh! (laughs) Julia pulls her hands away from Kate. Don't worry about them. Stay focused. Kate tries to grab Julia's hands. Um, I have to excuse myself. Sorry. Um, the outhouse? I have to use the... (laughs) When nature calls. (laughs) I'll be right back. (laughs) Julia stands and swiftly manages to skate around the Bender family and exit. As she does so, she begins to run. Pa Bender grabs a rifle and aims it at Julia, but she's hard to track in the dark night. As she runs, Pa fires the gun into the air as Julia disappears into the fields. John Gebhardt giggles while Kate Bender slaps Pa on the arm. I'm unhappy with how the night played out. You should probably do a John Gebhardt giggle, too. Give your best take. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Nailed it. Uh, So, yes, that is our that it was our first scene. There'll be another one in part two. Uh, yeah, so this is this is a a story that I read in again my primary source for the evening that I was just a little fascinated by because it really paints a picture of what the Bender family was like, and we don't know if they were planning to kill her that night, but it's definitely suspect that they grabbed a rifle. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, exactly, and and that they were just there staring at her. Yeah, while yeah, her it, eyes were supposed to be closed. Yes. Now, one thing I will. It, this is not a way to defend the benders by any means. Um, so hopefully it doesn't come across that way. But this story, I don't think people knew this story until after the benders were discovered to have been murderers. So it's not like she ran to town and was like, oh my God, that family, they were trying to shoot me. It was really weird. They tricked me into coming. It could be some sort of embellishment. Um, however, she was, oh, Julia was known yeah. to be, you know, doing seances with Kate. So it does. There is some validity to this story. 
It could have been like one of those, one of those, I was there stories. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, like, oh, she's just been there for the seance, but oh, no, then Mm -hmm. they tried to kill me too, but I got away. Yeah, yeah. And God, there's a lot of those even today. So a little side tangent, but when when I research, I, I hate comments on videos and articles and stuff. But I find when I'm doing these stories, it's actually really helpful to read through because every now and then someone will be like, oh, did you see this link? Or, oh, I actually read that, you know, like you'll find more information that you're not going to normally find. And still to this day on, I think there's some on Reddit, there's some on some YouTube documentaries I watched about them. There are people that's like, oh, my grandfather told me a story about his grandfather that went down and shot the benders. And like, there's so many of those tales. And it's like, it's a lot of these, oh, I knew them. Uh, And we will cover more of those in part two, actually, because there's quite a number. It's really fascinating. (laughs) So I, I'm not sure when the Bender family actually started killing. It, it could have been right away, and we just don't know. But I do think it, most likely because of when people started to be found or go missing, I do think it may be late 1871. And we do have some details of victims of the Benders, not everybody, but I will cover some of them today, starting with late 1871, right around the, the holiday season, like, like today when we're recording yes. this. Oh, that's creepy. Uh, a gentleman named James Farrick and his wife, Mary, had a young son. And Mary and the son were going to go visit family in New York. And James was going to stay behind and build the family home in this area of Kansas. And so Mary and the son, they they depart for New York for a number of months. Because back then, when you left, you left for a long, long period yeah, of time. Yeah, you weren't just going out yeah, <laughs> yeah. for a bit and yeah. by. And so the plan was, yeah, build build the home so when they return months later, there is a home for them to live in. So as soon as they leave, James sets off along the Osage Mission Trail. And it's likely he was carrying most, if not all, of the family's money at the time. And Mary and her son arrive in New York, and they write a letter back back to Kansas, and they never get a response. Now, at some point in time... I don't know how long, but after she's not getting any responses from James, she gets a letter from a family friend from the area in Kansas that say they have not seen or heard from James since he left along the trail. Now, right around this time as well, this is when Kate begins kind of working in town. She's doing her spiritualism stuff. She's doing her seances. And people are starting to that negative Yelp review thing is starting to pass around. Like the, the Bender family has now been there for about a year. There's a lot of tales of them either treating people poorly, treating guests poorly, Ma and Pa being just really terrible people. And Kate would dirty. Kate would be like very flirtatious to men one minute. And then days or minutes later, she would be complete 180 and be really rude to them and, and standoffish. And I I wanted to say this just because I'm trying to paint the picture of their personalities because they are so strange, hence a study of strange. Now, there are a lot of these sort of anecdotal things about their personalities are rumors. Again, it's the, oh, I knew them. I, I saw the thing when happened. That's where a lot of these come from. However, because they're all similar, I think that we can actually be like, yeah, Kate was probably very flirtatious one minute and then really rude the next. John probably was super weird. And Ma and Pa were probably really unfriendly because everybody says that. So there's just a there's a commonality to all these stories. So it, there's also a tale from the same book that I wanted to share just because, again, it's very interesting and scary. 
a priest named Ponziglione, I think that's how you say that, uh, was traveling in the area and he was raising money for a mission. And so he stopped at the cabin because that's where he was told you can get a, a warm meal and stuff like that. And Kate got really excited when she asked him what he was doing and he explained he's raising money for a mission. And the priest noticed after he started telling his story that the men who were in the cabin suddenly disappeared. He never heard them leave. He didn't know where they go or where they went, excuse me. And he asked Kate, like, oh, where, where are, you know, you're, where are the guys? And she gave some sort of like vague answer and she was making him coffee. And apparently she was acting really bizarre. She's like glancing around the room. Her eyes are darting around. She's putting a lot of focus onto the second half of the room behind the canvas. And it just rubs the priest the wrong way. And when she sat down with his coffee, he jumped up and made an excuse and left. And part of what makes this really dramatic is there was a huge storm. That's why he stopped there was to get out of this huge storm. And now he ran off into the storm to get away from the vendors. So that's another interesting story. In October of 1872, a dead body was found by two kids in a river called uh, Drum Creek. And the body had a blunt force trauma to the head and also a neck wound, like a cut. And it was assumed by authorities that the body was there about six days. And the body was later identified as a man named William Jones. And he was traveling the Osage Mission Trail for work. And his wife claims that he had hundreds of dollars on him. Locals thought that the guy that owned the land that his body was found on must have done it. This is very like investigating in the 1870s. Oh, it's your sure. land. You did it. Yeah. And exactly. th- this guy na- was named R.M. Bennett. And he was actually arrested for this murder. And he noticed, he was Columboing himself, that there was this interesting uh, uh, track left by a wagon that went that was near where the body would have been dumped in the creek. And the track of the wagon meant like one of the wheels was jutted out. And he was like, look at all my wagons. I don't know how many he had. Maybe he only had one. But he was like, look at my wagon or more. I don't have any wagons that have wheels like that. And so they, they looked at him and were like, okay, yeah, you're right. And we have no other evidence. So you're free to go. Uh, so luckily he was not. It's kind of like the early right. version of like the tire treads. Yeah. Uh, well, absolutely. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, the benders, I will point out, were not suspects. They were not suspects for any of these murders or disappearances for quite a while. And that is because life was tough. Like that it's a place where a lot of people are going missing for sometimes just very natural reasons. But again, there's other thieves and robbers and murderers and con men. There's also right across the border into Oklahoma territory. It's all where all the Native American tribes are. And they, rightly so, don't always get along <laughs> with yeah. the westward expansion of sure. white people moving through the area. Um, so there are, you know, some some violent interactions that can happen. So a man named Benjamin Brown came through the area and he traded horses with somebody at Lador, another nearby town or settlement, and then he disappeared. His wife actually went looking for him, knowing no one else is going to look for the guy, so I've got to go do it too. And she actually stayed the night at the Bender cabin along her, her search for her husband, which is just super scary. Now that we know that, she didn't know that. Now that you know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, a, ma- a man named William McCrotty, who was a war veteran, disappeared on his way to a land office. Uh, he stopped at the Bender cabin, it's assumed, because 
right before he disappeared, he talked to a guy and said, where can I stop to get some food? And they said, oh, go to the Bender cabin. That was the last person to ever see him alive. (laughs) Around Christmas, this would be of 1872, a man's body was found, which had been practically eaten entirely by wild hogs. He was able to be identified because of his clothing. He was a guy named John Phipps. And his family said he also was traveling with a lot of money. So you'll notice here that some people had been found dumped. The the guy in the creek and now Phipps. And this is all about to change. And I think it's about to change because word is getting around that there's dead bodies being found. And that makes people suspicious of a lot of things. Well, so especially I th- since that and the last people to see them yeah, was the yeah. Bender cabin. The Bender, yeah. People, you know, yeah. Exactly. So I, I think the Benders, they are both incredibly stupid and try to do something a little smarter, which is we're not going to dump bodies. We should bury everybody for a little more privacy. I mean, they got 168 acres. You might as well. <laughs> yes, you got you got the land. Use some of it. Yeah. yeah. So the the saddest story is the one that happens next, and that's a, a gentleman named George Longcore. His name is misspelled or spelled different ways in different articles and things, but I think that's just the product of the time and not everybody knew how to spell it. Uh, He was traveling to Iowa in December of 1872. Now, he and his wife, Mary Jane, they had a daughter who was 18 months old at the time named Mary Ann, and the mother had actually passed away due to complications with childbirth. So George Longcore, unsure of how to raise a daughter on his own, befriends a, a Dr. William York. And Dr. William York has a family. Marianne, his daughter, gets along with the family. So the York family actually helps take care of this little girl until one day the the step, not step, uh, in-laws, George Longcore's in-laws actually write to him are like, look, Marianne should come live with us. We're family. If we need if you need help with her, send her up to us. And he agrees to do that. So he actually buys a, a carriage from Dr. York and travels through Kansas, where he lives along the Osage Mission Trail with his 18-month-old daughter, and they never make it to Iowa. Now, a couple days after Longcore left, a man named John Hanley stopped by the Bender cabin with a colleague. They were just looking to warm up. I don't think they were planning to stay the night. And the Benders seemed uninterested in having a guest at the time. Like they were really standoffish and he wanted to light a fire and and they were like, no. And he's like, well, I'll buy the firewood. And they're like, no. And so it's suggested that they were being really kind of rude and wanting him to leave, probably because they still had George Longcore and his daughter's body, maybe even in the cabin, maybe in the cellar. Sure. So that's the suggestion. Trying to figure out what to do with it. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the first step towards the benders being found out. So they they should not have they should not have done what they should have done, which is just a terrible comment because they shouldn't have done any of this. John, what am I right, saying? Right. They should not have done any of this. Um, <laughs> so months later, after Longcore goes missing, uh, Dr. William York, his buddy, the person who helped raise his daughter for a period of time. He had been a Civil War vet. He was a bit of a hero in the Civil War. He had also been a prisoner of war during the Civil War, which is just the stories I've heard about that are just pure hell. And he went to visit his brother, Alexander York, because George Longcore is missing. And Dr. William York wasn't sure what to do and wanted some help. And not only 
had York not received word that Longcore had made it to his family in Iowa, but there was a wagon was also found and that was crashed and something, obviously it had been abandoned or something, and it had a wardrobe clothing from a man and a probably an 18-month-old girl. So William York went to see the, the wagon, wherever it was found, and was like, oh shit, that's my wagon. That's the one he sold George Longhorn. So he knew something happened to him. So he went to his brother, like I said, Alexander. Alexander is a former Kansas State senator, very recently Kansas State senator at the time. He was very well respected, very powerful, very interesting guy in Kansas, knew how to push a lot of buttons, get a lot of things done. Sure. And there's a story about him that I have to share just because it, it kind of shows how kind of interesting and cool he is. So he was no longer a state senator because he accepted a bribe, but he accepted a bribe to prove that another senator was paying bribes. So he kind of like <laughs> threw away his own career as a senator just to yeah. get the other guy out of the Senate. So yeah, he tricked, he tricked a guy by accepting a bribe and he actually went to the Senate floor and showed proof that he accepted a bribe. He's like, I accepted a bribe. Here's the proof. It came from that man, that senator there, that scumbag who we all know is a scumbag. So they had to kick them both out of the Senate. And I actually I mean, that's pretty amazing. Like, yeah, to stand up for your principles. Yeah. It's like, I I'm, mean, I'm, I'm, I'm putting your money where your mouth is. Literally. Absolutely. So yeah. I actually want to read part of his speech on the Senate floor because it's so cool. And also, I just love the language back then that people use. Oh, sure. So here he goes. This is Alexander York on the state Senate floor. I know that there are many present who may feel disposed to impugn my motives in this matter and decry the manner of my unearthing the deep and damning rascality which has eaten like a plague spot into the fair name of this glorious young state. I am conscious that standing here as I do, a self-convicted bribe taker, I take upon myself vicariously the odium that has made the name of Kansas and Kansas politics a hissing and byword throughout the land. <laughs> uh, yeah, so he is he's not a senator anymore, but people love him for what he did. He of is, course. He is, he is yeah, both yeah. feared and respected. And William tells tells his brother Alexander that he's going to actually go search for for George Longhorn himself, and he's going to start by traveling the same path that Longhorn traveled. And so he he gets in his probably horse and buggy or carriage of some kind, and he heads on down the Osage Mission Trail. And he soon too went missing. And his brother Alexander gets worried that. That now Dr. William York, his brother, is missing. He never showed up. So Alexander is like, something's going on in that area. So I need to figure this out. And there's somebody I trust, my other brother, their youngest brother, Edward York. He calls in Ed and says, get a detective, get a team together. We got to go find out what happened to our brother, Dr. William York. And in certain respects, they did find out what happened to Dr. William York. He, too, met the Bloody Benders. And that is where we're going to end part one, John, uh, is with the, the hunt for whatever happened to Dr. William York. And next week, we're going to conclude the story of the Bloody Benders, what investigators found, what they didn't, and the details of the Benders' escape from Kansas and into, I don't know, infamy, 
Are they in yeah, favor? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, yeah. they're, in, they're like, it's like folklore legend. Almost. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah. it definitely is. And now, now I'm thinking about infamous and the three amigos. Infamous? <laughs> in, he's infamous? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, Dr. William York, to, to surmise, his disappearance leads to the downfall of the Benders directly because the York, York bros are on the case. And it is not pretty. And we're going to get kind of more macabre in part two as we find out all the details of the the crazy bloody benders. Uh, John, since we are breaking this up in two, do you want to plug anything here at the end of this? And we'll do it again at part two. Like, um, where, where can I, people find you or, or what you do? They can or- find me. My website is uh, johnmkeatingacting.com. Uh, I also, I do, you know, acting, I do audition classes and, and I, I do audition coaching as well. Um, you can book an audition coaching with me through there or find out more information on the classes. Um, I, I'll plug my movie, uh, Concessionaires yeah. Must Die, which is available on iTunes and Amazon. I believe it's on Plex now as well. Oh, cool. Um, and possibly Tubi. It was mm-hmm. on Tubi for a while. It's, uh, uh, it's a comedy that I co-wrote and that I'm in. Uh, Stan Lee is in it, uh, and Dan Loria from Wonder Years. It's about the last days of a single-screen movie theater. So yeah, yeah, it is. It is very good. Everybody, please check that out. And yeah, I look forward to seeing everybody back for part two. Thank you for listening to part one of Bloody Benders. Visit our website, astudyofstrange.com. You'll find information about our Patreon. We would love to have you on there to listen to the content on Patreon and support the show. Find us on Instagram at astudyofstrange. You can also message me at astudyofstrange at gmail.com. And on the email note, uh, I am compiling personal UFO stories for an upcoming future episode. So if you have any UFO experiences, I would love to have you on the show. Email me a study of strange at gmail.com would love to hear about it trying to remember if i have any other announcements i don't think so not that i can think of make sure to subscribe rate and review and i look forward to concluding bloody benders with you next week thank you and good night